Lars Garshall is one of the most prolific writers in the world when it comes to historic farmhouse brewing techniques. His blog about farmhouse brewing was one of the coolest reads out there when I was first starting my personal homebrewing education. Well, today we're going to talk to Lars all the way from Norway about his upcoming books and historic brewing techniques today on Homebrewing DIY. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Keeping a clean brewery is the key to making great beer that doesn't get contaminated. Do you use a glass or plastic carboy for your fermentation? Did you know that getting your carboy clean can be tough, especially removing the cruising ring? Even with traditional carboy cleaning tools, it can take a lot of time and not get your carboy completely clean. Well, today there's a new tool that can easily clean your carboy and do it fast. And that tool is called a scrubber ducky. Scrubber duckies are a new magnetic carboy cleaner that are easy to use and get the cleaning results required in brewing. Drop a magnetic scrubber into your carboy and be able to scrub away all of the grime in that hard to clean cruisin. They are no match for scrubber duckies. And you can get yours today at scrubberduckies.com. Once again, head over to scrubberduckies.com. Building recipes and taking good notes are two of the key fundamentals of making great beer. This is one of the first things that you learn when becoming a new brewer. I started taking notes on a sheet from my extract kit and then quickly moved to brewing software. I've tried many different types of brewing software and then I found Brewfather. This is the one piece of software that you need for recipes and very detailed brew day notes as well as fermentation notes. Brewfather also integrates with some of the topics that we discuss on this show like the till hydrometer, the ice spindle, and ferment track. You need no other piece of software than Brewfather. One of the best parts of Brewfather is that you can try it for free. All you need to do is head to our website, homebrewingdiy.beer, and click on the Brewfather banner to sign up for free today. Once again, that's homebrewingdiy.beer, and sign up for Brewfather today. Have you ever wanted to make a podcast? Do you have a subject you want to discuss with listeners? Do you even know where to start? Well, if you want to make a podcast and you want to get started now, I could not recommend Anchor enough. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use right from your phone or computer. Creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. And you can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. 
Hey, look, I shopped around for a place to post my podcast, and Anchor was the easiest, most streamlined experience you could ask for. So if you're looking for a place for your new podcast, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Once again, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. And welcome back to Homebrewing DIY, the show that takes on the do-it-yourself aspect of homebrewing. Gadgets, contraptions, and parts, this podcast covers it all. Today, we're talking to Lars Gershal about his upcoming book and his adventures in learning about historical brewing techniques. But first, I want to thank all of our supporters over at Patreon. It's because of you and your support that you keep this podcast coming to you every week. If you like the podcast, head over to patreon.com forward slash homebrewingdiy and give monthly at any amount. We have a cool Patreon special going on right now, so the first 20 people at the $1 level get a logo sticker and access to our ad-free RSS feed. I'd also like to thank our newest supporter, Kenneth Raymond. Thank you for taking the time to head over to Patreon and support this podcast. Once again, if you want to support the show, head over to patreon.com forward slash homebrewing DIY. Another way you can support the show is to go over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash homebrewing DIY. There, you're going to get a direct link to be able to rate us on Apple Podcasts, podchaser.com, and your rating is going to help other homebrewers find the show. The last way you can support the show is to use our sponsor links on our website, homebrewingdiy.beer. Click on the Brewfather and Adventures in Homebrewing links, and your prices will stay the same, but then they'll know we sent you, and they'll support the show. I also got some feedback this week from Ed Maurer. Ed says, Hey Coulter, I love your podcast and the DIY of homebrewing. In fact, I think I enjoy the tinkering and building stuff as much or more than making beer. Today, as I'm finishing my newest brewery, third move in three years, I realized how much home-built and repurposed stuff that I have throughout it. I thought it would be interesting to share with you. Examples. Brewing table is solid wood door sitting on two sawhorses built from used concrete forms. My bottle washer and carboy cleaners are made from sump pump and salvaged copper pipe. A grain mill built with a 30-pound linoleum roller, exhaust pipe, and other miscellaneous parts. I'm actually kind of curious about that grain mill. I'd like to see an image of that. And then a rolling bottle dry rack based on office chair parts and PVC pipe, a brew kettle vented with a bathroom fan and a removable cellar window panel, and DIY wired STC pump controller on a 35-year-old dorm fridge fermentation with a heater. Also using the STC to control an aquarium heater to manage bottle conditioning in my cold cellar. Probably a bunch more stuff, but you get the idea. Most of these evolved from ideas, and then I picked up while roaming the internet. Cheers, Ed. Well, Ed, thanks for the feedback, and yes, I agree. As I look back even at my brewery, there are many homebrewing projects out there that I've been working on all of the time, and it's just always something to add to my brewery. My brewery. As a matter of fact, my keys are 
to this day is being run by an STC-1000 temp controller that I made back in 2014. It's been going strong for a long time, and once again, I, I gotta say thank you, and I hope that this third brewery of yours is your best yet. If any of you listening have feedback and would like to send it in, you can always email us at podcast at homebrewingdiy.beer or head over to our website, fill out the contact form, or just hit us up on any of our social media. Just look for at homebrewingdiy, all one word. Now, let's just jump into our show where we're going to talk to Lars today on Homebrewing DIY. I'd like to welcome Lars Garshol to Homebrewing DIY. Welcome, Lars. How are you? Thank you. Excellent. Well, welcome to the show. I, I think the first place we want to start in our conversation today is uh, just really, how, how did you get into homebrewing in general and, and how did you get started? Um, I actually never got into homebrewing at all. Um, I call myself an away brewer because uh, I visit people to see how they brew. Um, I have brewed a couple of beers, but it's only to test recipes, really. Okay, so so really, your hobby is to travel and experience other people homebrewing, really, then, right? Yes, farmhouse brewers, specifically. Yeah. So tell me about how you discovered farmhouse brewing and kind of how that has uh, turned into such a passion for you. Um, it started with... Of all things, uh, a book my wife gave me for Christmas. It was uh, a Danish brewer, Per Kölster, who wrote a book about, he had this idea he was going to create Nordic beers with Nordic flavors, and he wanted to look at the uh, the farmhouse brewing traditions for inspiration. And that was uh, that was the first time I got any real insight into it. Um, and there was particularly one chapter that struck me about this Lithuanian farmer who malted his own barley and uh, they had the yeast in a jar uh, in the well and stuff like that. So I figured okay. maybe maybe Lithuania would be an interesting place to go to. And so you ended up traveling to Lithuania and uh, and and seeing that, is that correct? Well, it was a longer process. So, I mean, getting to, getting to uh, Vilnius from here is a one and a half hour flight. It's it's no big deal. Okay. So I, so, so I flew there, went to a bar, ordered a beer, and was flabbergasted because it was like no other beer really. What what was the difference between that beer and the beer you had been drinking up until that point? It's totally different flavors. There's this massive, vivid uh, straw flavor. Like you have a bale of hun- uh, hay that bakes in the sun all day and you drop face first into it. It was really amazing. So so it kind of had a more kind of earthy flavor to it that uh, is something I, I think is very traditional amongst a lot of different farmhouse flavors that I've tried personally. What What do you... What do you think that it was that uh, really, I guess, what really kind of drove you, like, the like what what behind finding these farmhouse uh, uh, breweries and, and the process, what was it that you felt that was really fascinating to you personally? 
it was mainly the sense of mystery um, because it was so incredibly difficult to learn basically anything at all. And it started right with that first beer. They, the, the bartender had recommended it to me. And um, when, I, when I tasted it, I ran straight back to the bar and I, and I asked her, how, how did I make this flavor? Is it, is it the hops? Or... And she just looks at me. What is hops? <laughs> and I realized that oh, this isn't going to work. I'm not getting any here. Uh, and it's been like that the whole way that, you know, you want, you, normally, if you want to know about the, some type of beer, you know, you read about it online or you find the book. Here there was nothing, just a total blank. Well, and it's kind of like when you walk into some place that's been doing the same thing for so long, it doesn't need to be written down, right? They, it's just, this is beer. What is it? Like, it's beer. Is that is that kind yeah. of the is that kind of the mentality you you ran into when you first started discovering these things? Yeah, well, huh. it took a long time to actually meet the people who make the beer, but yeah, that that is the um, the way it works. So typically, you learn to brew from your parent when you're, you know, in school, and then um, eventually you start brewing for yourself, and then you just know what to do. Yeah, it's it's like. Uh... Cooking with your grandmother when you were a kid. Same idea, right? That's a, yeah, that's a very good comparison. It's exactly like that. Yeah, and then and then it's the same traditions passed down family to family, and the way that my family makes beer may not be exactly the same somebody a few miles away makes beer. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So I had my, on, uh, on Gotland, I had this... Uh, I met one brewer... And talk to him how he brews. He made raw ale. Then I drove, I don't know, 10 minutes. Talk to another guy. He doesn't boil the wort. That's not going to be beer, was the reaction from the other brewer. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of... Uh, it's I, 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 To me, I and this is just a personal thing, but I feel like, uh, and back to the, the grandma analogy, it's, it's that, uh, you know, farmhouse ales to me are the equivalent of home cooking. And so that, that's yeah, personal. Yeah. So, so my question is, is that uh, you you started a blog going through your travels. Um, I, I gotta be honest with you. I've read your blog multiple times since I've started home brewing over the years. How how did what was the intent of the blog to really just document uh, what you were seeing? What what was the idea? Well, actually, I started the blog uh, before I got into farmhouse brewing, and. The idea with starting it was just there were things that I that I wanted to say, and this was a place to, to put it, basically. And then, of course, when I started discovering the farmhouse tradition, it was it was natural to kind of that was the thing I wanted to talk about. So that was what I what I blogged about. And then, of course, I saw that this stirred up a lot of interest. So that made me. Uh, more interested in uh, in writing it, and of course, also, uh, I wanted to document it, like you say, to finally get some of this stuff down on paper. Well, not yeah. paper, but you get the idea. Yeah, totally. I totally get the. It's out there in the world for people to find, right? And uh, I, I mean, yeah. for for me, your blog is the first time I ever saw somebody putting spruce tips into a beer, and I know that that's 
seems pretty common these days when it comes to a farmhouse ale. But for me, it was uh, that 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 was the first place I ever saw something like that, and uh, it, it's uh, it's it's really cool. How many different places have you traveled to to look at different farmhouse sales? Oh my god, uh, a lot of places in Norway, uh, both in western, eastern, and central Norway. We do uh, I don't know eight, nine, ten different places maybe. Um, I went to Gotland in Sweden, the island of Mön in Denmark. A whole bunch of places in Finland, too many to to count quickly. Went to Estonia, several different regions there. Latvia, a lot of places in Lithuania, three different regions in Russia. That's it, I think. Okay, that's uh, that's that's a lot of area to cover. Uh, you know, one of the things that uh, I think that Europe has that uh, we don't really have here in the States is that, uh, you know, your farmhouse traditions date back, you know, hundreds and thousands of years. Uh, I think that just the the way that uh, the United States used prohibition kind of really killed our farmhouse traditions. And kind of after that, we went to like industrial sized brewing, right? What, what, what do you, what, what was some of the I, I best I guess the best question right now would be like what are some of the experiences that you had that that were probably some of the most profound experiences you had in your travels uh, do you have any like kind of stories out there of, of of some farmhouses that kind of really changed the way you thought about brewing in general it was especially in the beginning that uh, that it changed how I thought about brewing uh, particularly the first one where, I was I was asking him so so why are you doing this why are you doing that and this guy in addition to being a farmhouse brewer he's actually a, a climate scientist he's a he's a razor sharp guy really really smart so he wasn't used to not knowing the answers and it was kind of embarrassing for him that this is you know kind of chemical questions and he can't answer them he has absolutely no idea so he was just saying no I, I don't know I don't know and then. Um, he started. He started telling me about uh, when his mother taught him to make uh, pork steak. She said you have to cut off the ends of the steak before you put it in the oven. And he, of course, asked why, and she just said, "No, that's how we do it." And then um, he did the same for many years until he asked his uh, his grandma a long time later, and she said, "Well, that's because our old oven was too narrow." There wasn't actually any reason to do it, but he didn't know. And of course, <laughs> he's, he's implicitly saying, right, that it's the, it's the same with this brewing. I was taught that you've got to do this stuff in this order, but I don't know if it's necessary. I just know if I do it, it's going to be good beer. Yeah. And uh, it's the the thing that they were taught, they get to the process and uh, and it always kind of turns out the way it turns out is is kind of yeah yeah uh but of course what this really means is he can only brew that beer exactly he can't he can't design a beer it's impossible he doesn't have the the theory yeah so like if he were if you were to go to him and say hey can you you know this is what an ipa tastes like uh could you make it he's gonna be like that's not beer 
<laughs> he might be, or or certainly he's gonna he's gonna say that I don't know how to do that. Yeah. But if you gave him a recipe, uh, then I don't think he would have much difficulty. Yeah. Well, the process of making beer, I think, ends up becoming the same. You still have to mash. You still have to boil. You still have to ferment. Right. Like those processes don't change. Unless well, they you do. do a, but unless you do a raw L, I guess. Yeah, and there's other variations as well. Uh, for example, there are people who ferment first and louter afterwards. Okay. So why, there, why there are some really weird things that people do. Okay. Why, why don't you explain to me a bit about like fermenting first and then lottering afterwards and kind of what, like who does that and, and what, what's the beer kind of like when, that you've tried? Well, um, this process is documented from uh, different places in Europe. And it's usually, it's just one, one place where they say they do that and then none of their neighbors do it. So it's, and it's spread out. You find it in Norway, Finland, Sweden, Denmark, Belarus, but it's, it's, um, I think only a single person who brewed like that is still alive. And she's so old that she's basically, yeah, she's senile. She, her memory is gone. Yeah. So, so this tradition is gone. We don't know how it works. Ah, uh, you've, there's, you've actually heard... a, there's a Finnish brewer who, um, who tried to revive the, uh, this method of brewing based on documents. And when he did it, he got, his first three brews, he got three different results. And his problem is he doesn't know, is one of them right? Are all of them right? Are none of them right? He doesn't know. Yeah, that that's kind of an issue when when uh, something dies out, like a lost language or something like that, right? You, you may be able to go read about it. You may be able to uh, scholarly look at it. But if you don't have somebody to verify that, hey, this is what it is 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 this the right one you hand it to them and they're like yeah this tastes right you don't have that right yeah yeah this is why it's so important that uh the people keep the tradition alive because like you say it's like a language that gets gets extinct or, or a species once once it's dead it's it's not coming back yeah uh you're uh, in the process of uh, writing a, a book right now. Um, I think it's due to be released uh, this year by Brewers Publications. Uh, how's that coming? And uh, and what, what would I expect if I went and got the book? What's going to be in there? Well, it's kind of an overview of the world of farmhouse brewing. So it's it's about all of these weird brewing processes, why they are like that, uh, what flavors they give, how to brew beers that way. Also about uh, farmhouse yeast, farmhouse malts, um, strange ingredients like the juniper and so on. And also trying to look at the culture of this to to, um, to give some context so that I, the idea is to make people brew these beers, you know, commercially and at home. But I felt that if I just gave people recipes without the background it would it would seem basically almost insane because so much of the stuff is strange so that's why i decided I, I wanted to kind of present the broader picture yeah and, and i i gotta be from a, a person who's uh going to read this book 
to be honest, the background is just as fascinating to me as the end product, which is the beer, right? Uh, I I love the the stories of why people make things the way they do, why they use the ingredients they do, uh, the tradition in which they come from. And then when I go and make that beer, it's something I can at least have. I, I think every beer has a story, and it's at least something I can be like, look, this is uh, the way that they've made this beer in Lithuania, for example. And uh, this is my recreation of that, right? Yeah, that's that's kind of the the thinking behind it, and uh, I yeah, I hope it will work that way. So I'm I actually handed in the manuscript uh, May last year. So what, we yeah we we went through the editing, but this uh, I should be done with this book now. I don't think there's anything more for me to do. Okay, when, when is the the official release date? Uh, April seven. Excellent. And uh, for those listening on uh, around April 7th, you'll be able to uh, get access to this book on Brewers Publications, uh, probably Amazon and all of the other booksellers that you would be buying your normal book, uh, beer books from, right? Yeah, that's right. Excellent. Uh, you talked about some uh, uh, in there when we were just kind of going through the book, you talked about uh, different kinds of yeasts, right? And and I know that like Kvike is uh is kind of at least in the states is starting to take the brewing world by storm here what other kinds of yeast did you run into through your travels um there's uh quite a few lithuanians who have their own uh farmhouse yeast so some of those are home brewers but also actually some of the commercial uh farmhouse breweries in lithuania there's also some brewers that still have their own yeast in uh, Latvia. We don't really know how many. And then when I was in Chuvashia in uh, in Russia, it's about uh, oops, 800 kilometers east of Moscow. Uh, it seems people there also have their own yeast. And, and, and what, these, hmm. yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, so these are these are not quite. They have. Uh, some similarities with Quake in terms of their brewing properties, uh, but uh, genetically they they are not related to Quake at all. And, and some of those properties are things like uh, temperature resistance, that kind of stuff. Yeah, and also f- very fast fermentation. So yeah, this is one thing that uh, that the book is going to explain more. But the the normal pitch temperature in farmhouse brewing whether you're in central Russia or Suffolk in the UK is body temperature. And is that because they usually are pitching that in the same room that they're brewing? Um, they're not getting it cold, chilled down all the way to like 60 degrees. Uh, like is, is yeah. there environmental reasons on why that pitch temperature is that? Yeah, I think it's, um, like you say, they don't have any uh, cooling technology, so it takes a long time to cool. And this is basically just underneath the, the theoretical limit for how hot you can ferment at all. So yeah, it, they must have somehow uh, trained their yeast to handle this. It must have evolved to, to handle these temperatures, basically. Yeah. Well, and... and- I I mean to be honest if if you're looking at hundreds of years and many thousands of generations of of yeast 
it does start to really hone into the environment it's in, right? Yeah, it does. I mean, that's what's happened with um, the commercial beer yeasts that we know as well. They they lived in commercial breweries for many centuries and adapted to, to the way the commercial breweries brew. So, in fact, um, the the best temperature for, for yeast to ferment that in general is actually roughly body temperature. So it's not really the farmhouse brewers that are strange. It's the, it's the commercial brewers. <laughs> you know, and I it's, it's funny you say that because uh, I it, it makes total sense once you put it in that perspective. Yet when uh, you're a, a home brewer and your goal is always to, you know, at least a, a home brewing in the States, and I think uh, just like uh, home brewing in general is people trying to mimic commercial beers. Um, it's something where you're like, well, that's the way it's done. And and really, farmhouse, if you think about it, is really the way it was, should have been done, right? Yeah, it's, it's well, the farmhouse world was kind of unknown, right? So, so yeah. we, everybody assumed that commercial brewing, that's how you did it, and nobody gave it any further thought. Yeah. Uh, and but this that's what's been so fun about discovering this that you <laughs> you're you're finding that the world looks totally different from from uh, how you thought it was. Yeah, and, and the other part of it is is that when you think of it in those terms, and you know, farmhouse brewing has happened for thousands and thousands of years. It, it's something where you're like, hey, this makes total sense. It's when you're like things like fermenting of foods, right? You you ferment foods in a way that is not in a commercial sense. Like if I if I make pickles and I'm gonna do a lactobacillus fermentation on my food, uh you're you're taking the natural yeast out of the air and off of the vegetables and 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 temperature is less important in in that aspect, right? Yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah. So and when you look at those farmhouse yeasts, they're kind of symbiotic blends of those things. There's yeast, there's a little bacteria in there, there's you know, it's kind of a, if you think of it as kind of like a, a culture of a different blend, right? Uh, it is definitely a culture. Uh, and there's many, many strains of yeast uh, in those cultures. Whether there's anything else varies a lot. Uh, so quite a few of these seem to be free of any contamination at all, um, at least that the, that the labs have been able to find. But in some cases, there is other stuff in there. Um, yeah. And, and what are the different ways that, like, for example, through your travels, that people stored these yeasts for repeatable in, in different batches, right? Yeah, in, um, in Norway, the um, farmhouse brewers in the south generally keep them just in glass jars in, in the fridge. In the north, they uh, usually dry them. So they take the, the slurry, smear it on uh, baking parchment, put it in the oven and get these uh, hard, thin chips that they put in the freezer. But uh, other places, they do other things. Like in Lithuania, they put uh, put it in a jar and then lower the jar in the well because the temperature there is pretty stable. Um, but the, the Russians seem to mix it with, um, with flour and turn it into a kind of dough. So it was semi-dry, basically. Huh. Yeah, that's... Uh... It's kind of funny to think of the different ways people are, you know, uh, storing it to, you know, use in the next batch. Yeah, it still doesn't get contaminated, right? Well, uh, the Russian one was contaminated. 
but but it but it made good beer. So yeah. the thing the thing is this flour, uh, unless it's um, flowers that's been been treated to be sterilized, which I don't think this was. Uh, then there's going to be other microorganisms there that you add to your yeast. So it's kind of uh, it's kind of strange that they do that, but uh, apparently it works. Yeah, and then you you were also talking about just some different types of ingredients that you ran into, and you know what what were some of the more outlandish ones that you can think of off the top of your head. Well, I mean, the one that you referred to was uh, juniper branches. That's that's one that seemed to have struck people with uh, quite a bit of surprise because it, it looks odd, right? You go out into the forest, you take this tree, and you 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 put the whole thing in your beer. Um, but that's that's actually the uh, second to hops. That's far and away the most common uh, farmhouse spice. In many places, it's more important than hops. Yeah, I I, yeah, I, but, could, uh, I could see that. Yeah, other ones I saw people using uh, Mirica Gale, Sweet Gale. That was uh, quite surprising. Uh, there was a guy who used blackberry leaves, but usually uh, people don't mess around with strange ingredients a lot. It tends to be uh, water, malts, yeast, hops, and juniper. And then a very, very few people use one of the traditional brewing herbs. And that's pretty much it. Okay. Historically, there was a little bit more variation. So there were some people using tobacco, for example. And there's a, there's a list of uh, five, six different uh, common brewing herbs. But beyond that, there was very little. Yeah. And in some of my uh, uh, earlier uh, experiences at least with uh, a post from your blog when I saw pictures of like the the juniper branches being added to beer uh, I've also like seen it as an example of uh, layering it in the bottom so it can almost kind of uh, uh, almost kind of like filter out of the bottom is that is that a, a normal use for juniper as well yeah it was extremely common um, the other there were two more things that were common to use in the filter. So one was basically straw, uh, but very few people do that today. And also, for some reason, uh, sticks of older wood. Hmm. And uh, the the older wood adds uh, color, a kind of reddish color to the beer. And I think many people wanted that. Uh, but then when you look at the documents, when people explain why they use them, then... Roughly half the people say because the older doesn't add any flavor, and the other half says it's because it adds such a nice flavor. <laughs> <laughs> so what does it do? Well, I don't know. I need to chop down an older tree and find out. Yeah, but but when you look at like even modern brewing, right, and we sit down with people and try to do taste tests and try to do it even in a scientific manner, the results tend to be all over the board, right? Uh, taste is so subjective. And, uh, you know, even if, if there's scientifically numbers that are different. So, for example, let's just say uh, we do two beers that are fermented at two different temperatures. There are many studies where you sit down with 25 people and and most of the people can't tell the difference. Right. Yeah, there, there is definitely a lot of uh, almost superstitions in, in modern brewing as well. So although modern brewers have 
a good grasp of the of the chemistry and what happens it turns out there's still a lot of stuff that we don't know and a lot of stuff that that normal homebrewers believe that just isn't the case exactly and, and and so for me it's like uh you know that that also being said it it kind of even goes back to we're talking about alderwood right some people say it doesn't add flavor half the people say it does and it's kind of like they're still in that process because and this is just a, a total speculation on my side but the 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 process of when you're fermenting this beverage it is undergoing some sort of change that's biological through yeast and we still don't totally understand what it does to the beer right on a on a like taste level yeah absolutely absolutely yeah um and and of course it's a, it's a tremendously complicated thing to answer as well exactly uh but on the other hand if you scientifically go look at it and and i'm sure that labs have done it and have gone through entire processes of fermentation and different stages it's still hard to relate that to flavor yeah that's true uh but flavor that's that's kind of where some of the magic comes in right that um the fl- the flavor is so subjective and so complicated that the chemistry doesn't really describe it fully i that yeah and i think that's actually the better way of putting what i was trying to say <laughs> no. exactly yeah and, and so yeah i uh, and through your through your different travels uh what would you say are some of the the traditions that are still being carried on and maybe some of the things that have kind of died out that uh uh you think that people will never get to really try uh yeah i I guess i should say that uh, my biggest source of information is not actually the travels but uh archive documents so uh in the the nordic and baltic countries there were uh, ethnographic institutes that uh, studied folk culture, and they collected huge archives of, uh, of documentation about the farmhouse brewing. So, for example, when I talk about this thing with fermenting in the mash, my knowledge of that comes from these archive documents. And that's, that's why I know about it, even though I've never met anyone who, who brews in that way. But can you do the question again? I sort of lost the thread. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. The uh, I think the right question is is that uh, you know through through your studies the the things that we taste today are really the things that have survived. And we we talked about you know how things could go extinct. What are maybe some of the things out there that you did in your studies that uh, that people aren't doing anymore and uh, nobody's really tried? There, there is a lot of that. Um, what's what we have today is kind of just the tip of the iceberg, really, because uh, historically, every farmer in in Northern Europe uh, brewed their own beer, and in most countries, basically, almost everybody were farmers. So, the the size of the tradition that's now gone is just staggering, unbelievably vast. So there, the list of stuff that's now dead is uh, almost infinite. Um, but if we're talking about techniques, uh, most of the techniques are still alive. 
um, actually, most of the, the, the brewing processes. Um, but on the malting side, I guess that's where things have changed the most. Um, and there it's changed on several levels, actually. Uh, one of the biggest changes is, is to the grain itself. So when we talked about the yeast, uh, you know, I said there were, there were many, many different strains in, in the culture of farmhouse yeast. It used to be the same with the grain that the farmers grew. That, uh, you know, today, the, the grain in the field is all genetically identical. It's, it's copies of, the, of a single grain. But uh, historical fields were not like that because the, the grain had never been purified. So when you looked at the, uh, a field of grain, the plants were different heights. And they often had different colors. They looked completely different from each other. And at least in, in bread baking, people say this kind of grain gives uh, a totally different flavor and in many cases, much better flavor. Um, but most of those kinds of grain are actually gone. We don't have them anymore. That yeah, that is uh, fascinating. You, you don't really realize how uh, how the modern industrialization of uh, farming has really kind of turned things into that monoculture that uh, has really kind of changed the diversity in the grains that we're even making beer from, bread from, and kind of all those things, right? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's one thing that really surprised me when I started looking into this. And a lot of the uh, the historical malting methods are are also gone. So, for example, uh, people who didn't have a lot of grain would often uh, dry the malt in an iron pot. <laughs> and if you ask me how that tastes, I haven't a clue. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, and that you know that's it, kind of unheard of because uh, even at the homebrew malting level, because there are people out there that are you know malting at home, um, they're still trying to mimic the industrial malting process, right? So, you know, yeah. uh, it's getting wet, uh, you know, getting it to germinate. The, the, the kilning is, is trying to still mimic that. And uh, I, I would love to kind of see how maybe a, a farmer hundreds of years ago actually made malt at a farm level, right? Yeah, that's actually a, a whole chapter in the book. So the stuff about uh, the land races, uh, the different you know types of grain, rye and oats and all of that, uh, and also the, the germination and how how they dried the malt. So there's yeah, drawings yeah. of the different types of kilns and that kind of thing. Yeah, that sounds super fascinating and, and, and definitely something that uh, I want to dive into. Uh, well, Lars, is, is, is there any kind of more brewing stuff in your future? Well, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm still planning uh, more travels. I have a list of places where that I need to visit where people still brew that, that, that I haven't been, even new countries. Uh, there's also a list of archives that I need to visit to find uh, more documentation. So the book is really kind of a report on a work in progress, I guess. Yeah. And and if you were to say the place that you haven't visited yet that you really want to go, where is it? All of them, I guess. Well, okay. Maybe, maybe Georgia, the country, Georgia. Yeah. yeah. Yes. 
uh, the the uh, Eastern European country of Georgia. Yes. Um, yeah, we can dispute whether it's uh, Europe or Asia. It's um, <laughs> yeah, it's on, really on the close. south side of the. Uh, it's on the south side of the Caucasus Mountains, and, and usually the the mountains are considered uh, the border between Asia and Europe. But it's a Christian country, so in many ways it is kind of European. Yeah, that that sounds like a, a, a pretty amazing trip. Well, uh, it should more. it should be. They have uh, they have uh, amazing food. They ha also have actually uh, fantastic wine. And this is also the one of the areas that more or less invented agriculture. So the, um, for example, the grain types that they have are completely different from the stuff that we know. Um, there's, for example, uh, types of wheat that make red bread that they have growing there. Huh. So the idea could be that. Uh... Uh, it, the farmhouse brewing is also going to be very uh, close to those different grains, right? Uh, yeah, because they will have uh, they will have made their own malts and and brewed from that. So, what does that do to the flavor? I don't know. It's also possible some of them still have their own yeast, which would be extremely interesting to see. Um, and I know they have some uh, different types of brewing methods as well. So should be very interesting to see what it is that they're actually doing. Yeah, I will uh I I will definitely make sure that I'm reading your blog when uh when you post those. I'm, I'm very very curious. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, well, this this could take years though. I don't know um the main brewing area is it's not so easy to get to. There's uh <laughs> There's one form of public transport, and that's a, a Soviet-era truck that drives over a mountain pass in uh, 3,000 meters. And, you, know, you have to stand there in the back of it for 10 hours to get over. Wow. That's, uh, that's going to be quite a trip. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah, but you know, part I, I think part of uh, of at least your travels and your research is all kind of uh, you know the adventure of the unknown. And really, just yeah. trying to uh, uh, learn what other cultures are doing and, and see how it revi revolves around, uh, you know, uh, our favorite fermented beverage, which is beer, right? So yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, well, Lars, uh, I want to thank you a ton for coming on the show and and sharing with us uh, the information about your blog, your travels, uh, farmhouse brewing, and 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 just your your immense knowledge of all of uh, these subjects and uh i would like to also make sure to let all of the listeners know that remember april 7th is when his book's coming out and, and if you're in any way interested in farmhouse brewing i i it's a highly recommended read uh i haven't personally read it but i, I i'm totally going to uh but i am uh, somebody who avidly reads uh, Lars's blog and 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 super excited to see what comes out of uh, this book. Great, thank you. Hey, thanks for coming on the show, and uh, thank you for uh, uh, giving me your time today. I'd like to thank Lars for taking the time to be on the show. It was a great conversation and I learned a ton and I hope you did too. 
If you want more information on Lars's upcoming book from Brewers Publications, head over to homebrewingdiy.beer. I'll have a link to that page as well as a link to his blog. Once again, head over to homebrewingdiy.beer. Well, that's it for this week, and we'll see you next on Homebrewing DIY. <laughs>